new beginning. Welcome to the Grief Dreams podcast. My name is Sean Ram alongside Dr. Joshua Black. And beautiful day here to podcast. And we get another opportunity to talk to an amazing guest. And let's jump right into it. Uh, so on today's podcast, we have with us John Deach, and he is a award-winning writer, producer, director, talent, and consultant on hundreds of films and television shows focusing on the outdoors, travel, and fly fishing. As a life coach, teacher, TV personality, Aspen, Colorado guide, and host of fly fishing trips across the globe, John helps his clients and students follow their passion by connecting with nature. Deach is a is perhaps best known in fly fishing circles for his supervision, doubling, and stunt work on the fly fishing scenes for the Oscar-winning film A River Runs Through It. John's first book and co-author byline, Shadowcasting, won, won a Colorado Book Award. His TV and film productions have garnered more than 23 awards, including a telly for the primetime TV series Adventure Guides Fly Fishing Edition that John hosted on Outdoor Channel and NBC Sports. Graced by Waters is Deech's first collection of stories to celebrate and explore our spiritual connection to waters and the natural world. John is blessed by his beautiful wife, Molly, and two adult children, John Jr. and Sarah Elizabeth. Their home is in the Pacific Palisades, California. John, welcome to the podcast. Uh, thank you so much. And I wanted to say both of my kids are here with me under the roof still, even though they're adult children <laughs> because of the pandemic. <laughs> but great to be on the show. And I really look forward to, to talking about this this stuff with you guys. It's always exciting when, for me, when um, we not only talk to guests, but talk to guests who have very unique lifestyles that I have no idea about. <clears throat> And fly fishing is one of those things. I've never done it. I barely ever fished in my life. And so this is going to be really interesting for me to learn a lot of what someone may go through to enjoy that, that sport or that activity and how that is, how that works with their grief and how that works with, you know, living, living the, the best life they can. So I, I'm really happy you're here. And so my first question to you is, what is fly fishing and mm -hmm. how, when did you get started in it? Well, I'll answer the first question, uh, what is fly fishing, and then hopefully go into the other one as well. You know, fly fishing is an art. Uh, it is also uh, very science-based. It started back in Mesopotamia, uh, you know, um, thousands of years ago, when uh, you know, fishermen realized that uh, certain fish ate insects. And so they would employ different techniques than normal fishing where you use bait and wait because especially the insects that float on the water need to, to be made with feathers and other things that are that are light uh and then fly fishing over time really developed out of that and then you know it it, it is pretty much known that the the british were the ones that really uh sort of brought it to the fore and uh here in the western united states uh, in particular well at first it went to the east coast and then uh, the Western form of it here in the United States is the kind of fly fishing that I really learned, although it's a mix of, of all the other ones, the ones from back east, all the way back to Mes you know, Britain and Mesopotamia as well. So it, it is really the idea of uh, imitating, uh, it, it, we can also imitate uh, other types of, of, of uh, bait uh, like minnows, and uh, perhaps little shrimp type patterns as well uh, under the water. 
uh, <clears throat> and so it's evolved over over the millennia. And and uh, the still today, <clears throat> Joshua and Sean, the ultimate form of this fishing is done with uh, a, a a dry fly that sits on the surface. And it, it that part of it, the science, we could spend a whole show, and people do. There are podcasts galore on uh, tying flies. I'm actually not that much of a fly tire because I'm a writer and a guide and a fisherman. In fact, I, I went fishing this morning. But <clears throat> what what fishing for me is today, and, and the way it's transformed for me, is that it is a way for me to deal with my grief. And I... And I recognized it uh, when I started to write the book uh, that that in fact I say in the book I think I would have probably died if I didn't have fly fishing, and it turns out that I'm not alone because um, fly fishing can treat PTSD. In fact, um, there are uh, organizations out there that take men that have come from the battlefield, veterans, and teach them to fly fish and teach them to to, to tie flies, and it's been proven through science that this is actually a way for them to uh, treat their PTSD. And then there are also programs that I'm involved with, like one called Real Cool Recovery, where uh, men with cancer um, are treated. Uh, and, and when I say treated, we, we just simply take them out on the water. I had the privilege of doing that with a gentleman who ended up passing away not long after I was with him on the river. God bless his soul. And uh, it, it, so there, there's more and more of this sort of connection between uh, grief and uh, transformation in fly fishing. And uh, the book really uh, goes into that in terms of my personal experiences. I call them sort of empirical experiences uh, as well as spiritual experiences that I've had with water and, and looking at water as a transformational vehicle and a spiritual way of, of coming at the world, especially water uh, from a cold water fishery, but I, I was fishing in the ocean today, all sources of water. And for me, the idea of actually going into the water is like a metaphor of going into spirit. You know, I, I believe that spirit is all around us. And sometimes we have to stop for a moment and recognize that it is around us and that we need to simply just step into it. And so for whatever reason, that uh, vehicle that I've been doing over and over all my life as a guide and as a fisherman, it suddenly dawned on me that I think that I have been fishing all these years for something that's a little more than fish. <laughs> and you asked me about how I started. And I live here in Pacific Palisades, California, and I actually grew up not far from here. And you'd think, well, how could someone uh, in a place where all the rivers literally just south of here are all encased in concrete, would become a, a fly fisherman. And really the truth is that uh, in order for us to connect with nature, uh, we would go to the Sierras almost every weekend. We'd go skiing or we'd go fishing when I was a, a young boy. And my, my father, God bless him, took me out uh, and took all of us out. We'd go camping and, and learn to fish for trout in the Sierra. We also fished on the beaches, the two things that I still do today. So uh, luckily, I got to learn how to fly fish uh, through the Orvis School uh, in Manchester, Vermont, with my father when I was about uh, 12 years old. And it's, this is a good segue to explain 
I think the reason my father chose to do that with me just before moving back east when I was oh the age of 10, my little brother died. And we had been in the same room together uh, in bunk beds our whole lives. And he had seven heart defects. And my father had a, a chance of a lifetime uh, in terms of his career to uh, work as the head counsel for uh, a, a man by the name of Ludwig, who uh, uh, J.R. Ludwig, who at the time was the most wealthy man in the world. And so uh, he had that contract, had signed the contract. And shortly thereafter, here, we were living here in Los Angeles, uh, my brother passed away. And it was really just his heart gave out. In fact, when they when they did the autopsy, uh, they discovered that my brother's heart was the size of a walnut, the, inter the internal part of it, and that there were no chambers. And uh, my parents told me that they told my parents, the doctors, that he was a what they call a medical miracle, uh, <clears throat> that there was really no way for him to have been walking around with that kind of a heart. And I'm going to leave that off to the side when we come back to that. I ended up you know, loving uh, fly fishing, and uh, uh, I was a guide in Aspen uh, after college, and uh, we went to University of Colorado and was fly fishing there and uh, got very into it, ended up working as a guide. And then in about 19, let's see, it was 1991, the... The winter of 1991, I got laid off from my job producing for uh, an ESPN television show called, uh, uh, it was Powder Magazine. It was shortly thereafter that I ended up getting uh, hired on a film called A River Runs Through It. And it turns out that A River Runs Through It is about a uh, man by the name of Norman McLean, who honors the life of his brother as a much older man, it took him until he was in his 70s to really be able to uh, write down the story. Uh, <clears throat> I understand that he was, went through a lot of grief, didn't talk about it very much, but it, but it is on record that it took him a long time until it was a, he was in his 70s to really come to grips with the death of his brother and to write about it. But he wanted to honor his brother. And uh, it was, it's, it's now commonly referred to as the holy grail of fly fishing. And it just so happens that the story is about a brother, like I said, named Paul. Well, it turns out that my brother's name was Paul. And although I was much younger than Norman, when my brother died, uh, I was 10. Uh, and my brother was <clears throat> about, about the same uh, difference in age as Norman and Paul, uh, I understand. Uh, but here it was that I by coincidence, uh, you know, was, was standing in the waiting shoes of Norman McLean and was responsible for all the fly fishing scenes. Well, it didn't dawn on me until I actually saw the rough, the, not the rough cut, really it was pretty much the, the, you know, the, close to the final cut of the film. You know, I, there was a special screening that they invited me to. And I was not really involved with the post-production, but I was, involved in, I was involved with all the pre-production, all the development, uh, and, and all of the shooting of the fly fishing. It was my responsibility as the department head to make sure that those scenes were done uh, uh, perfectly, uh, as perfectly as possible. Of course, we 
there is no such thing as perfection in my mind, but we did the best we could. And uh, I think to this day, the, the industry, the fly fishing industry, believes that the job that that uh, that we did as a team on it, uh, it was you know, that I led, uh, was was a, a, a pretty darn good uh, attempt at uh, recreating what fly fishing was like in the 1930s with uh, Norman and his brother. So it, it wasn't until I saw that rough cut uh, that I recognized that something inside of me had had been repressed and uh it was really this uh this i would call it survivor's guilt that i believe that norman also had for his brother to a degree Uh, again he was much older but he does ask the question throughout the story especially at one point in the story he 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 and his father wonder if if they could have done something different and they recognize that it's the kind of question that everyone asks. You know, it's the question that that is uh, timeless, and that it perhaps will never be answered. Uh, <clears throat> and that the important thing is to just be in the present. Is is really, I think, how I interpreted what, uh, or I interpret how Norman wrote about that. And it, I, I was incapacitated uh, after watching the film. I was supposed to go back to work, but I went home, and I slept, and I cried. And uh, and I, I recognized that I needed to uh, uh, journey in, in terms of doing some introspection about what maybe I had been covering up. And I, I, I learned over the, the last, it's been almost 30 years now, that a lot of other people were affected by this movie in the same way and by the book. And so uh, it turns out that my uh, older brother, Presser. Oh, I think it was uh, the the film came out in November, and I believe that uh, it was. In fact, I can know the exact date. Uh, it was in December. Uh, on the twelfth of December, we were celebrating my father's birthday, as well as my uh, my brother Cresser's uh, honeymoon down in Mexico. When he said, "You know, something's really going on with my neck. It's very swollen." My mother said, you need to, when you get back to the States, you need to really uh, go see a doctor. And it turns out that he had lymphoma and it was a very advanced stage of lymphoma. And uh, uh, he ended up get, you know, fighting it with chemo. I remember being with him in New York City and watching all that wildly colored concoction going into his veins. And he fought it. And we thought that he, had, you know, he was going to uh, be fine. And uh, turns out uh, a year later, he um, it came back, and I'll still never forget. And, and this is one of the stories in my book when my sister said in November, uh, she said this is a year later, it, <clears throat> she was she was pregnant, and she she was very grief grief stricken and said that she was uh, afraid to have the baby. And we thought, my gosh, what's going on? And she said, I'm afraid that if I have the baby, that my brother Cresser will die. And now fast forward to January 1st, when she went into labor, and we told my brother that she was going into labor, and he said, I know, I am too. And I think it was something like six in the morning that she had the baby, and we sat there with my brother. And uh, within uh, about mm, an hour to an hour and a half, 
uh, he took his last breath there with us. And uh, that's sort of the story of of uh, of uh, fly fishing and grief, as as it as according to John Deach. Wow, that's I don't know where to start. There's so many parts where like I wanted to like ask something or go further into something, but just the way you told it really moved my heart in the sense of the sadness, but also like the timing of things too. I'm, I'm, I'm glad you were part of that movie, not because it won awards or anything, but because it really opened up a part of you that you didn't know was suppressed, you know, like yeah. that grief. And I think a lot of people, when we go through loss, we think we're doing better. We try to get to that spot as quickly as we can to feel almost normal, but we don't understand what's actually underneath it all. And mm -hmm. as you sort of saw, right? Like you never would have thought that, you know, you had all this stuff, but it was there. And mm -hmm. so I'm happy you're able to process that. And then, you know, like soon after your brother dies too. So it's just like, it's just like, it's a wild story. And as the movie that you're a part of was, it could be a movie, you know, like it's, it's that, it's that surreal in the sense of the timing of stuff and then how you used fly fishing as a way to cope with it all. What, when it comes to fly fishing and grief, what do you think it is that helps you? That's a good question. I, I could tell you in, in the present tense, the last Two months have been literally hell for me. I have self-diagnosed myself with something that is called nature deficit disorder, and for me, it, it it for whatever reason, it's really my need to be around water, and it's part of what I did with a book in terms of the, the research and came to to recognize that I'm not alone that uh, uh, there are different forms of what is called nature deficit disorder. And I also want to make clear that that, that term is not something that uh, I came up with. In fact, it, it was brought up to me by my cousin, Chris Kresser, who is a, uh, a uh, I guess I'd call him a, he'll probably kill me if he hears this, but uh, a homeopathic doctor, very, very uh, well-known medicine man who who helps heal people and he heard the what i was doing with my book I, we were talking one day and he said oh you have to read richard lou's book last child in the woods and in that book he says that you know nature is often overlooked as a healing balm for the emotional hardships of childhood and uh it just dawned on me that this book and this, which is a collection of stories in my life, embodied what Richard Liu was talking about. And especially living in an urban, you know, growing up in an urban environment like Los Angeles, West Los Angeles, although it's beautiful and there are some large homes, it's still, uh, you know, right on the edge of a very uh, hardcore urban, maybe not as hardcore as New York, but perhaps one of the most biggest and sprawling. Uh, megalopolises uh, on the planet. And uh, I went to school where we were surrounded by uh, uh, concrete every day, all day. Uh, there were a few trees and lots of fences and buildings. 
And there's this other thing that I learned, this other term, I should say, called biophilia. And biophilia is the notion that uh, for, you know, since the beginning of time, except for perhaps the last 150 years, or we're getting closer to 200 now, uh, man, you know, human beings have been surrounded by natural images and sounds, uh, sounds of water, sounds of uh, thunderstorms and, and rain, although we still get that uh, in the cities. But what, what mostly this refers to is the fact that we also were seeing vistas of trees and sunsets and sunrises and the accessibility of nature uh, and being a part of it was something that was ingrained in us for literally tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of years, millions of years. I'm not sure how long man has been on the planet. So it's <laughs> the, the, the point of it being that, that, and I'm not a historian in that way or a naturalist, but the, the, the very concept that we have, all these people have come from rural areas to the cities over the last 200 years, and there's been this increase in depression. It, it dawned on me that this was a real thing. So I started to write about it. Now, after writing about it, I, and putting it down on paper and even saying that, that, uh, that, you know, it, without fly fishing, it, it could have killed me. I remember you know, I, I would have, you know, I, I would have been dead. I, you know, it, it, I, I remember thinking, you know, my wife's going to read this and some of the friends who, who know how much I love fly fishing and how I've given up, you know, uh, this big producing career to, to just, you know, write and fish. And they're going to say, he's just, you know, he teaches that, you know, just making this up, you know, so he can just fish because he doesn't want to, you know, uh, be responsible or something. I thought this in my head. Well, what's interesting is that the pandemic hit and they closed the beaches and they closed all the trails behind my house. And I went into one of the deepest, darkest depressions of my life. And it was because I believe to a large extent, perhaps part of it was the book because this book is, uh, you know, I, I'm very vulnerable in the book and it's talking about the stuff we're talking about in the show. So I, I don't want to discount that, but I didn't have nature. I didn't have the ocean. I didn't have the, the, the trails behind my house. And we have hundreds of miles behind my house. It was all closed off. And I didn't have that to uh, use as medicine. Mm-hmm. And, and it's, it's been proven now, and there's lots of studies now. In fact, when I started writing the book in 2012, there weren't really many at all. Now there's over a thousand studies that show that being in nature, immersing ourselves in nature, at least for, and it's, it's been codified, two hours a week. We, or should, I should turn around and say that when people immerse themselves in nature for at least two hours a week, it has been proven that they have better mental health than people that don't. Now, it's funny when I was writing the book because I was like, well, that's just like, of course, everyone knows that. Well, it turns out everyone doesn't know that. And in fact, we saw this here in Los Angeles when when our 
people in government made a determination that it wasn't worth figuring out a way to give access to nature in, because it was essential. It was deemed non-essential because it was, of course, people you know spreading the virus because they'd be too close together, et cetera. But if we had a different perspective on how humans need to interact with nature, and that it, it is a necessary part of, of, of our mental health to have access to nature, I think we would see things in a very different way. And so it's been a, it's been a very interesting uh, time for me, to, you know, and it, having experienced this kind of, of uh, I'll just call it, I don't like that word, but depression without being able to access the, you know, I went fishing today and I just have this incredible feeling. And going back to your original question, you know, I sat down and I meditated and then I watched the water before I fished. And that's what I do now. You know, I, I meditate and I remember, and I, and I, and I wrote something to the effect of, you know, that, that I am 70% water over 70% water and so are you two and so is everyone who's listening we we're we're over 70% water there's more than 70% of water covering the earth and yet when you see the earth or you see another human being and I'll ask you uh Joshua do you think the earth is looks solid or do you think that Sean over there looks solid or do you think that he looks like he's 70% liquid? The way he's moving right now? <laughs> solid. <laughs> well, you right. see this guy dance. <laughs> Turns into there liquid. <laughs> and so for, for me, it, it, it just, it's part of this, this, this uh, journey that I've been on in terms of understanding that, you know, if, if I'm not solid and you're not solid, but we're really actually 70% water, then isn't this an illusion? And if, if, if the illusion of us being solid is true, which it is, isn't everything therefore in some way an illusion? And uh, that's really part of this process that I've been going through with writing of the book. Yeah. And why fishing is that access to it? Yeah. I I totally understand what you're talking about. And uh, I think like it's something in society we, we've definitely, you know, it's, it's mixed bag. There's people who have maybe grown up or, or um, been around nature or been introduced to nature through their family or parents or, or maybe a mentor. And, um, you know, but there's some of us who maybe grew up in cities and had to kind of uh, reconnect with that aspect of it like you know just like you were talking about whether it's you know the mountains being in a forest you know uh being near water going on hikes like these are all integral and it seems like it's almost like in our dna as humans like you alluded to before through you know our ancient ancestry to kind of be near those forces and it does something to us in that sense, like, you know, after you go for a, a long hike or after you, you know, maybe spend a, an hour or two near some mountains, it just does something 
to you in that moment. Like I know for Dr. Black, it's the ocean. It just does something that can reconnects you. And there's just, it's, it's hard to even describe sometimes. Like for me, I know, you know, water throughout the years, I've understood and gotten to know water a little bit more. And it's so true. It's like, if there's one aspect of like viewing it, maybe from a beach or from the land, but when I get into it, when I go waist high or, you know, chest level high into water, I could feel a change and the sensory change is critical at that point. Cause I'm feeling the water on my body. I'm looking at it. I'm, I'm, you know, submerged in it and it's like a different world. And I, I feel, it, I don't even know how to describe it. It sounds woo woo, but there's like an energy shift. I can feel the energy of it. And man, it's just one of those things that I think definitely we've disconnected with. And going back to when you're talking about, you know, being away from it, having depression or, or anxiety of feelings when you're not able to do that, you know, a lot of people maybe don't recognize that or not at that level or in some people do, you know, like there's a big difference between going to a gym, getting on a treadmill and walking for an hour surrounded by concrete walls as opposed to going outside and walking for an hour and seeing the trees and hearing the birds and, you know, feeling thing, the wind on your face. You know, these are all things that maybe we can't articulate how important it, it is to us in humans. But if you just look back at our history as humans, 99% of our history has been that. And here we are in the last 100 to 150 years where we've kind of shifted into mm -hmm. cities and into, you know, concrete homes where we're not, you know, experiencing rain or water or thunderstorms or wind like we used to. And, and maybe there's something missing. Right. And yeah, that's beautiful. And I, 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 <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's, it is music to my ears really when, when someone waxes on something is to me as spiritual as water, it, it, and sees that it's it, it's a connection, and and I I I spend my summers taking people out, you know, on the river in Colorado on the Roaring Fork River as a guide, and I and I love taking people who, uh, you know, aren't uh, aren't necessarily expert fly fishermen. And sometimes I take people out that have never fly fished before, and you know I watch them as their minds get blown, you know, and they. Not everyone. I've had people who just don't get it, but it nine times out of ten, you know, people are really blown away by by the river and understanding how how it works scientifically, and then stepping into that liquid and experiencing being a part of the river as a predator. And I think that's important. And I want to get into that. Maybe this is a good shift to get into that uh, other piece. Uh, that I've discovered with the book uh, ar around this idea of predator and prey, because it, it, you know, the, the class, are you guys familiar with iron John, the book no. by uh, uh, Robert Bly, you know, it, it was a book uh, in the sixties that, you know, when people came back, when men came back from the Vietnam war and were so uh, wounded by their experiences with that kind of violence, uh, there was a, a real, uh, th there was that sort of creation of the passive man, uh, 
and uh, the sort of the new age man, and there there was a disconnect because because I think on some level men, you know, we still have to uh, not have to, but you know, providing is something that we've always again going back thousands and thousands of years, we're, we've always been the provider. Uh, at the same time, we are being asked to be more sensitive, I believe. And uh, it started, you know, who knows when it started, but certainly the Vietnam War was a turning point in that. Uh, and, and sort of around, around that, at least the way I look at it, some of this new age uh, 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 movement started in that, in that era uh, where we really saw the value of, and still do obviously see the value of, Perhaps even a more feminine way of 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 uh, approaching life, and as men as well. Uh, and so, for me, fly fishing, you know, is a a a wonderful uh, metaphor, and it's a a, a a a terrific way for men to go out and be the predators and learn to go out and, in this case, you know, get the prey. Right, but we, as fly fishermen, pretty much, at least, we. Some people think it's actually part of fly fishing, and it's not. But it 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 is for the most part this idea of catch and release, where we actually let the fish go, and that in itself is is a great lesson of giving back. You know, still going through the motion of of the predator prey. But then having the compassion to let the fish go. Some people say, "Well, you're better off just, you know, killing the fish because you're torturing it." Well, uh, I, I went through that myself. I used to, to, or I should say, I've tried to fish without a fly, and I think on some level, and maybe at the end of the show, we'll we'll end with that. But I do uh, envision a day when uh, I would be able to actually fish without a without a hook. I've tried it. Uh, and it's, it's a meditative practice. So there is a meditative practice to what we do. And I'll just give you an example of today where I meditated and, uh, I was in a really beautiful place. And, and in that place, I, I really saw that if, if indeed, if indeed when I am sitting there in meditation and I, I come to understand the lesson of the fact that my body is a vehicle for my soul, then I'm able to see that, that the material is in some ways an illusion like we talked about before. And so what was interesting was I said to myself, and I wrote it down and actually posted it, I said something to the effect that... Uh, Perhaps we're when we're able to let go of the material, or, or I should say, are are identifying with the material, things shift in terms of 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 our of our spiritual side. And the irony of the whole thing was, and I kind of had this in the back of my head. Now, last year I fished with I fished with a very difficult kind of species called a corbina, and last year I went out and. For 20 mornings in a row, I was not able to hook and land and release a corbina. But after doing that meditation practice and having that insight, after 20 casts, I caught a corbina this morning mm. and then let it go. And 
I, I don't know what that I don't know what that means, right? That it, but but I can tell you that you know, uh, there's a lot of very spiritual cats who who say that success doesn't come from wanting to have success. It actually comes from just being in the moment. And I, I think that that's what this that was what I learned this morning was is to just be in the moment. And it just so happened that the success, but I like to say it's got more God's success than mine. <laughs> you know, I mean, I'd like to think that I, it's because of all this, you know, yes, I'm an expert fly fisherman, but it's, it's really when I let go and let God or let spirit, um, it, that these things tend to happen. Well, it's, it's, it's great that even as an expert, you still have your challenges ahead of you. Like, it's not like you're going out the next day and just grab it. Like you said, 20 days. And that's a, that's not a quick journey over there. Um, but yeah, no. back, <laughs> back yeah, to what you're was, talking it was about. Nice. It, was, it was nice. It was, it's sort of, I, I think I said something to the effect of like, well, yes, we, we can like, we, uh, the, the, the material may not be the thing, but it's a thing. <laughs> yeah. And like, yeah, exactly. Nice yeah. Like, yeah, I appreciate the struggle over here, God, but like, you know, I would like to see the uh, rainbow, uh, you know, the end of the rainbow over here. <laughs> right. You know, back so, to what you're talking about. I think that's such a, that's, it's such a key point because it's like, we can all observe from, you know, the outside. It's like watching a television show. Like you're not impacting it in any way, you know, but mm nature it's different what you're talking about which is going out there like we're talking about being an active participant in nature and that's what happens when you are in nature and that might be why it's so different and and important for us like if you're going camping and you're if you're going to a real wild area you can't you are a guest almost in a lot of ways and you have to kind of change your perception like you're stepping on a trail or stepping into the forest, everything in that forest knows you're there very quickly, mm -hmm. almost mm -hmm. quicker than you can even make sense of what's going on. There's a bear two kilometers mm -hmm. or two miles away that'll smell you before you mm -hmm. see it. You know, there's just birds that are talking and seeing you and communicating. There's, you know, even the trees, everything understands you're there. And that's you being an act. And if you recognize that, I think that's you actively participating in that adventure journey. You know, mm -hmm. when I went camping, I think two years ago in Algonquin Park here in Canada, you know, when you when you're at night and you see the stars, like mm -hmm. you're not looking at your cell phone. Well, at least I hope you're not. I, I was <laughs> like th those people who do sit there looking at their phone or whatever. They're not actively participating. They're passively, but like when you're there, you know, you put everything down because that's the greatest show, right? That's that show above you with all the stars on a clear day is breathtaking and that's overwhelming. And that's the beauty of what nature provides, at least for me, in that oh, mm -hmm. that moment. And that's when a lot of the deeper thoughts and a lot of the questions come out. I'm not thinking about, oh man, I gotta go do laundry. No, it's it's like uh, you know, I'm I'm immersed, and that immersing is important, and also being connected. And when it comes down to you know things like grief uh, and loss, you know that would be a great again moment. Those moments when you can have the clarity of mind because you've taken an active role in 
immersing yourself in nature to, to, to now bring everything to nature and kind of have that conversation, if you will. Hmm. I, I absolutely. And it, 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 I, so many things come to mind when, when you, when you were talking and one of them was the image of, of, uh, people on apps now when they're looking at the stars and as much as I think that's really cool because you can really start to see where the constellations are and, and all that. And I've, I've seen that and I've done that. I, I think that, and, and really for me, what, what I'm, Josh, what I'm taking away from this pandemic is, uh, is that we are being reminded that we're, we are guests on this planet and to a degree. I mean, I know from a Christian or a Judeo-Christian point of view, the earth was put here um, for us. But, you know, uh, even the Pope, I happen to be Catholic, you know, uh, but the Pope is, has, you know, has said, you know, we have to be stewards of the planet and we're not being good stewards right now. And in the pandemic, you know, when we basically just have slowed down at least half the planet, uh, you know, all over the world, nature is, is showing its, uh, you know, its uh, gratitude and uh, it, it's resetting. And to me, it's just showing us that we, we, we are not, uh, we, we need to watch how egocentric we have become. And, uh, and I'm, I'm, I, I'm not saying I'm, I'm excluded from that uh, challenge. And in, in, in fishing every day, I have that challenge until I, until I actually take the hook off of my, my fly. And I'm not saying I'm going to do that because I believe, and that's sort of one of the um, premises of the Iron John story, uh, is, is that we have to find balance. Uh, you know, we have to live, we have to eat, but perhaps there's, there's uh, a, a, a better ways of, uh, going forward than just going back to the way everything was. And we keep hearing over and over again that uh, nothing will ever be the same. Well, the river tells us that. We take one step into the river and, and there's that famous Heraclitus uh, 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 passage. In fact, I, I put it here in the beginning of my book and if I might just read it uh, here. I, I say, you know, the more I fly fish, the more I discover its rich ability to boil down life's most complex problems into the simplest of truths. Like life, the river is constantly changing. As Heraclitus said around 500 BC, no man ever steps in the river in the same river twice, for it's not the same river, and he is not the same man. Stepping into the river is indeed a unique moment each time filled with anticipation and promise. Nothing stays the same. Norman MacLean, author of the novella A River Runs Through It, wrote, under the rocks are the words, and some of them are theirs. These are the voices of our ancestors. And if we learn how to listen, they can transform our hearts. And I, I you know, this is a, a great transition into uh, your background, I think, uh, as a doctor and studying grief dreams, and you know, to me that 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 is the the crux of, of the book for me on the spiritual side of it is 
you know, what what are these lessons? What are the, what what are my brothers trying to tell me? And hmm. And yeah, I guess maybe this is a good time for us to go into the dream I had night before last because I, uh, you know, I I, uh, I wrote about it to you guys, and uh, it's it's uh, it, I think it was in I was anticipating this this conversation with you, and you know, subconsciously had this dream, and it it put everything together for me as to what what has what the book is about and what my journey is about. And I'll just say before I before I hand it back to you is, is that I I I had my first book reading up in Canada right before the pandemic, um, and unfortunately all the other book readings now had have had to be virtual. And after the book reading, I read I read something, and one of the gentlemen came up to me and he said, "You know, you're just starting on this. You know that, don't you?" And and I didn't know that. You know, and now I know that, you know, this is, I thought this is the end of my journey <laughs> because the book took me whatever it was, eight years to, to write. And, um, I, I am, you know, I, it, it, I guess we're always learning and we're always moving in, you know, one thing ends and another begins. And I am just, just starting this process. It's, 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 it's like it repeats itself and it gets deeper, like peeling the onion perhaps, but I'd All love right. to share that dream with you and, and, uh, love to hear your insight into it. Yeah. First I want to sort of say, are you saying we are always changing? Like the river is always changing. I think yeah, you are. I mean, yeah. yeah. And I think, yeah, you know, it's a great absolutely. parallel in how we are sort of like the river. If you can look at it in that perspective and, in the sense that every time you look in the mirror, you're looking at someone new. But the issue is we always think we're looking at the same person. And that's because the models of the past and who we think we are, that right. can say the same. But who you are has changed. But it's like catching up to that. And I think, you know, when it comes to rivers, we name a river as if it's like the same river. But it's just like, no, like the water in that is different than it was when it was named. So it's just like, it's very interesting when you can get down deeper, which you have, which I think is really beautiful and finding that spiritual connection with water and with yourself to really piece apart who you think you are and how you see yourself in this world. And that helps with your grief because who you see yourself as impacts how you see your grief and where your grief is within your, within your soul or within your, your environment. So I think it's amazing. I think there's so much wisdom in what you're looking for, but yes, let's get to the dream. Cause I read it and I really want to talk about it. So yeah, let's, uh, let's start off with uh, sharing that. That's awesome. I was sleeping. I was dreaming. <laughs> I was dreaming, but it, it, you know, it's funny when we say we're dreaming because as we all know, when the dream is happening, it's real. And I'll just tell you what the dream was. It, I was fishing and which I don't really have a lot of fishing dreams. At least I thought I was fishing and I cast out into this pond and all of a sudden this creature, you know, deep in the pond came up and it was, uh, it was ghostly colored and it was about the size of a dog. And it looked a lot like that creature, uh, that grotesque creature from, I don't know if you've ever seen, um, uh, what the heck is the name of, well, it doesn't matter. It's, 
it's a, it, it was a very, very disturbing realization that something with two legs and two arms had taken my my bait or my fly, and and I reeled it in with the instinct of reeling it in, and as I was reeling it in, I started to kind of recognize that perhaps this was meant to be and that I was supposed to be doing this. But at the same time, and I'm just getting chills when I when I when I think about this. It it I I, I recognize that that it was not like a normal it wasn't a fish. It was something that was perhaps after me. It had teeth it was frightening looking and it started to crawl towards me. And so I, I picked it up and, and it was dangling, you know, on my rod. And I was looking at this thing going, holy smokes, what is this? And I was scared. I was scared for my life when I saw that it was taking the hook out of its mouth and looking to attack me. And in that moment, looking back, what was happening is perhaps it was the predator and the prey were switching and suddenly I was the prey and it was the predator and it jumped at me to you know felt, felt like it was going to try to kill me and I woke up and I was I, 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 I there was a there was a being next to me and it was my dog it was my uh my, my two-year-old dog, which had actually uh, about right right when the pandemic started, uh, he took off after a, a, a skateboarder and the, um, the leash cord uh, took the top half inch of my finger off. Just like that. Boom. So I don't know if that was the, if that, you know, had anything to do with it, but I, I love my dog and it, it, it felt more like I, this, there'd been a transformation of this beast. And so I don't know if I'm supposed to do this, but what, what, when I, when I wrote this down, I, I, I literally, uh, you know, I, I was, I, I had, I had tremendous emotion around it because what, what I recognized was that this whole process that I've done with the grief about my brothers even though I'm 58 years old and this, you know, my brother was in his thirties when he, my older brother, when he died and my younger brother died, you know, uh, so let's see, 10, so whatever, 48, you know, uh, about 48 years ago, you know, uh, the, 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 the grief journey I've been on has been very complicated in terms of being able to really let it go. And what I think I, what the way I look at it is that in that moment, I've always seen that that grotesqueness that was there was a grotesqueness to the to the death and there was a, a, a and, and to the the fact that I survived and it was it was you know the survivor's guilt and what what's been happening with this process and I'm hoping that I can that by sharing my own grief that others will give themselves permission to share their own and to uh to grow and to not just pretend like that beast doesn't live in that pond, in the depths. And I say somewhere in my book something about the, you know, there, there was a 
grotesque creature that I knew was there. And that by doing what I was doing at writing about it, uh, that I would transform it into something beautiful. And that was my hope. And I believe that that is what I've done. Very interesting dream. Yeah, so like dreams represent our waking life and the symbolism is so unique for every individual. And of course, the fly fisher has a, a fishing dream, right? <laughs> Perfect. Where he becomes the prey. He becomes right? <laughs> a little switcheroo there. Yeah, and you know, like, I think you, you're right, right on the money when it comes to, you know, what are you fishing for in your life? What's underneath the surface that you don't know? and that you caught something, right? And so there's something in your life that you've caught that's ugly, that you're taking notice of now, where before it was just under the surface. And water's a really good metaphor for your unconscious mind too. So it's like the grief is a perfect understanding of that. And so I'm really happy how you connected those dots. The question is, is it beautiful yet? And that's like mm. a different question because in the right. dream, it didn't change form no. to something more beautiful so there's still this processing going on of holding yeah. it and sharing it and really working through all of all of grief and you said like you also have compounded grief in the sense of the pandemic and not being able to go outside all those things are related they're all related to loss and they all stir one another up so it's very um a very beautiful dream to share to everyone too on how to look at your dreams and how to process them and with the right perspective to gain motivation, to not be afraid of it, but to gain motivation and to search further within or to, to search further into who you are. That's beautiful. And I, I, I uh, thank you so much for that, that insight. And it is a process. And I, I thought maybe I would read, uh, I would read, uh, I was going to read my, what I wrote this morning. I come here to fish, but it is not fish that I'm really looking for. I may be the predator hunting the prey, but hasn't the last few months turned around that kind of thinking? Are we really here to hunt or to be hunted? I don't think so. These waters tell us a different story once we learn how to listen. We are way more of waters than we are of the earth. So thinking that we are solid is an illusion. And if that is an illusion, then is not everything else as well. We are part of something much greater than we can fathom. And we start to recognize this once we let go of our identification with the material. This morning, I feel graced by waters. And I, I, I'm, I'm still blown away. And I believe that, you know, God... As I said, you know, it he remains anonymous when these kinds of, of synchronicities take place. And the fact that I caught a fish right after that and hadn't all last season, you know, just it tells me something about what about how this all works. It, it, it water is a is a mystery. And we are mysteries, I believe. Oh, definitely. Life is a mystery. And these dreams and grief dreams, they provide even more mystery into what what the dance is all about. Like, what is it all for? And as you said, like, is it prey? Is it just to get external things? And you're finding no, there's something else beyond it all that makes life more meaningful and purposeful. And you're finding that more and more 
and grief is a part of that life and it teaches certain people at certain times and your path led you to water and fly fishing in nature not everyone's will but yours has and it can inspire others to try new things because it could be the thing that saves them as that tool as they move forward and through their grief and through their life as they try to look for deeper meaning and purpose well, I, I i wanted to thank you for that again and it, absolutely it's it and i think that is really why i wrote the book and i that i as much as it's about fishing it's also about fishing for something deeper than that and it was really about fishing for this uh for this place where i wouldn't feel so consumed by survivor's guilt mm-hmm. on some level and uh you know i don't want to give away the end of the book but in the end of the book i uh, I tell a story about what actually happened, you know, in the in the few days leading up to my brother's uh, passing, and uh, there were a couple things that happened that really always made me feel like I was responsible for his death, and I know now that that is very God centric thinking in the sense that like now only God really, or our higher our higher power or whatever you want to call it, fate, you know, to think that I that I would have the kind of, inf- I mean, my brother didn't have chambers in his heart. I mean, he, he had, he, he was a medical miracle. So I do look for a new dream. You know, I think you talk about sort of a dream, you know, what, what, what kind of dream would I like to have? And, and, you know, the dream that I had the other night didn't end with, you know, the resolve was that this, this that my dog was you know, was was there. It was a it was a, a, a the beast was 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 not there to try to kill me. Although it, he did actually take my finger off a few months before, but you know it it it, it was not in the dream. And so I think that the dream that I uh, I would I would like to have would be to be with my brothers at that pond. Uh, know fishing maybe fishing without a hook you know and not even being distracted by what we're just to be together and it's that human connection and being in the moment i like that. and it's a it's a tricky business because when we're when we focus on the past like i have done a you know a memoir memoir-esque kind of a, a writing you know we we don't we we take the risk of getting stuck there and uh Really, the work is to 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 do something like this so that I can become more present, and anybody else who's doing this kind of work can become more present because my brothers and that was part of you know the last the last story of my book is called "The Angel with a Perfect Heart," and it my brother did have a perfect heart, and he had a perfect life because it was his life. And, uh, you know, we can rewrite these things. And I think the dreams in some ways are a process towards that. And I'd love to hear more from you on that. Yeah, they definitely are. They can help us or hinder us based on our perception on what we think the dream is referring to or telling us. But like, as you're sort of saying how, why you wrote the book and the impactfulness of it into your life, I go back to what you're saying prior to 
sometimes we go to something external, right? Like we're writing a book for others or to share to others. But what you found along the way was actually something inner and something that got pulled out that you didn't know. And I think this is the beauty of life is that we go to one thing or we were led towards one thing, but it's actually helping something else. And dreams are very similar to that in the sense of they're pushing out a narrative for you. And depending on what you what kind of truth you want to know about and want to see, then you can start looking a little deeper. But um, I'm glad you wrote the book. I truly am. I'm glad you sort of helped. Um, you're, you're helping others, but you're also finding a different path in yourself that you haven't explored yet. And these are the beautiful things about life, right? We, when we try new things, we do new things, we find new things about ourselves and our life. So mm-hmm. I'm really happy. I hope the reader, I hope the listeners uh, goes out and, and looks for Grace by Waters. I think that especially if you want to learn more about, you know, your journey and how it all ends, you're really, the suspense is killing me. <laughs> but um, well, it, I, seems, it seems to me, though, that you're, uh, you've processed some of that survivor's guilt, uh, especially with talking about it so openly and really understanding the uniqueness of the situation you're in and how you tried to find almost a sense of justice in it. You know, I think that's one of the, the, the things when it comes to survival's guilt. And then you will be able to sort of release that and to be able to live with it. Well, that's beautiful. And I, I don't know if we have time to thank you for that. And I, and I think that I have, you know, this has been a, a, a life-changing experience, uh, writing the book and then sharing with people like you. And I, and I, and I really love this show because I'm, I'm, I'm interviewed quite a bit on the, on the fishing side of things, you know, fishing podcasts and, but this is this is much more of a spiritual book, and the, the, your your grief dreams uh, really uh, uh, are, are such a great venue for for me talking about the book. Now I don't know if we have time, but I have about a about a five minute story that is about the the Deja Reve uh, that we talked about, and and uh, because I do inter- intertwine the stories in my book with just other spiritual. Uh, uh, experiences and this particular one is about uh, is about an experience I had where uh, at the confluence of Malibu Creek, where uh, steelhead actually still come up there, um, you know steelhead trout, uh, which I fly fish for, not there in Malibu Creek, but because uh, they're protected. But uh, there's something about waters for me, and and uh, that where I've had these mystical experiences. Um, take place and i don't know if it's if we have time to do that would that be possible yeah i think that's a good thing to kind of uh, wrap up on absolutely terrific okay excellent so just start into this story here at one point while surfing i remember panicking that i didn't know where i was or what day it was when i finally paddled in i told my friend charlie that i had i may have just had a stroke i was so frightened the experience emulated my experience with the same people in the prayer circle, which I'd been in. But we were doing the kind of things you might do in a dream, a dream that I had apparently already had, but was unaware of at the time. I was present on my surfboard, but at the same time, I drifted into what felt like another dimension, place, or past. I was so disoriented that I just wanted to get back on dry land and find the reality that was my real life. I had heard stories about epilepsy, Alzheimer's, and other brain disorders creating these types of experiences, so I was at first very concerned, especially because the lip of the wave had hit me smack in the forehead while paddling. 
Was this what had happened? Once the panic subsided, Charlie suggested that I may have had a mystic experience. A peak or mystic experience is described by Maslow in his book, Religion, Values, and Peak Experiences, a visit to a personally defined heaven from which the person then returns to earth. This is like giving a naturalistic meaning to the concept of heaven. This type of experience, like a deja vu, is nearly impossible to describe. How can we experience a place without ever having been there? Was it purely coincidence that I was in a prayer circle just before having this experience? It is debatable whether a déjà vu, which means already seen in French, is really a mystic experience or a peak experience, as opposed to a brain twitch. No one really knows why a mystic experience or string of déjà vu happens or what it means. Increasingly, neuroscience believes that déjà vu is created in the temporal lobe of the brain. Epileptics, who have more déjà vu than ordinary humans due to their disorder, have been tested. The activity that causes the déjà vu can be isolated to this specific region. According to psychologist Akira O'Connor from the University of St. Andrews, one idea is that the déjà vu, vu is a sort of brain twitch. Just as we get muscle spasms or eye twitches, it could be that the bit of your brain which sends signals to do with famil- familiarity and memory is firing out of turn. As I researched, I came upon something called déjà rêve, which means already dreamed. Déjà rêve is a phenomenon similar to déjà vu, but instead of feeling like you have been here before, you feel like you have dreamed what has happened to you before, or what takes <clears throat> or what takes place in real life has already happened in a dream. When I first read about déjà rêve, I felt chills go down my spine. There was even one account of a young man with epilepsy whose chronic déjà rêve was so intense that he could hardly decipher between reality and his dreams on a day-to-day basis. This description was almost exactly what I felt in Malibu. And two to three days after that, and having since experienced something similar, although less intense three other times, always around water. A recent study in the journal Brain Stimulation explains this chronic phenomena that took place with certain epileptic patients who were able to recall a dream or have a dream-like fe- or have dreamlike feelings associated with a previous dream while awake. It turns out that déjà rêve, like déjà vu, can affect anyone regardless of whether they have had a brain injury or not. When I first read about déjà rêve and its association with patients who had neurological disorders, I was fearful that my history of brain trauma was to blame. I had, I had brain surgery for cavernous hemangioma in 1999, and more recently in 2018, I had what is called an episode of transient global amnesia, or TGA. In the case of the latter, for six hours, I was unable to form new memories. I said the same thing over and over again until finally, while about to undergo an MRI in the hospital, I started to remember who I was again. While it might seem that these neurological disorders are connected to my déjà rêve phenomena, I passed a number of brain scans and numerous neurological tests after the hemangioma and the TGA events. According to my neurologists, it is impossible to link my déjà rêve phenomena to my past brain injuries, which they tell me have completely healed. I now believe that what happened to me at Malibu that day was perceived by my brain, but not generated by it. 
from my point of view, my deja reve is of a spiritual nature, not the onset of some terrible brain disorder. Sometimes putting too much emphasis on figuring it out etches God out. For me, it is now clear that deja vu, deja reve, experiential phenomena, and mystic or peak experiences derive from spirit. In a world where the rational mind reigns supreme, we run the risk of forgetting that the place we come from and the place we are going to will always remain a mystery. Deja Reve has offered me insight into the possibility that there are other dimensions. The concept of the multi multiverse and alternative realities are too complex to go into here. So suffice it to say that the feeling I get from a Deja Reve is like receiving a telegraph transmitted with Morse code. Deciphering this code has helped me to recognize the message. We are fundamentally not of this earth. Perhaps we are not human beings having spiritual experiences at all. We are spiritual beings having human experience experiences. I believe that there is a numinous energy behind these kinds of experiences. And much like my other emotions, I'm reminded to become more grounded in God's light and love because we are children. We are all children of God. I'll stop there. That's great. It's, uh, <laughs> I was like, just like laid back listening. And uh, it's like a prelude to the audiobook. <laughs> there you go. Maybe I can use that uh, <laughs> when, we're, when, when I get the opportunity to do that. Oh, you don't have it. You don't have your book and audio version yet. Not yet. I'd oh like to. well, yeah. Prelude. <laughs> I like yeah, it. Yeah, you. Yeah, and you've got, you've got to narrate that. Yeah, yeah. I like yeah. it. You have a very I'd calming voice. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I thought I'd share that because it's it's really the the most dream oriented uh, piece that I have in in the um, you know in the book, and uh, it and it was it was ironically set off by a prayer circle for someone who had passed away. Hmm. So it, it's very much um, in the same uh, genre of what you gentlemen talk about. Uh, last question. Uh, have you ever had a dream of any of your brothers after they died? You know, I wanted to go back. Of course I have. And, uh, oh. and I, 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 but I, I don't, you know, I don't remember because it's been so long since they passed away. I do. I'll, I'll tell you my wife, my wife had a dream of my brother. Actually, she thought he was actually there the the night that he died, and she didn't know he had died, and she had a dream about him. Wow. That I can attest to, and I know that I had some dreams uh, uh, that I think similar to the story I told about uh, uh, the scariness of going in and and uh, getting that thing out of the out of the the pond. Perhaps I'm 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 a still a little uh, reticent of going in and recounting that dream. Mm. So I would love to think that we could do this again oh, okay. once I find those dreams because I know that I had them. And there was some talk about a bobcat and about an eagle. And my brother died through a shaman. Yes, let's uh, let's do that. Let's set that up. Once you uh, even have some more dreams, um, we can get you back on and talk about it. But oh, it's been a be pleasure. Great. Thank you so much for coming on. And is there a place where people can find your book or to find you? Yes, absolutely. It's uh, Graced by Waters, G-R-A-C-E-D, and then a uh, separate word by, and then Waters. And uh, Graced by Waters, I'm on Facebook. I'm also on Instagram. 
uh, under that name. And then my name is John Deach. It's D like David, I-E-T-S-C-H. It's like diet school without the O-O-L. And I can be found online there as well. Uh, my book is being offered uh, at Amazon, also uh, through Simon and Schuster, and with an audio other other places as well. With an audio book on the way. <laughs> After this, thank you for giving me the uh, opportunity to do the pilot. <laughs> yeah, well, I, you know what, and and this has been great, and it's something that literally we could talk about for another three hours, and oh, that's, that's why. So we, great. Yeah, we definitely have to have you on again. Um, John, it's been wonderful. Um, so just uh, to wrap up, uh, people can check out our platform at griefdreams.ca for more information on the topic. Uh, we did add a donation button and there are perks to those who donate. If you have Facebook, you can join the Grief Dreams group. You can share your dreams or hear more dreams of others. Uh, we are on Twitter and Instagram at Grief Dreams. And as always, we like to end the show with love and gratitude from us to you. Just myself, you have introduced yourself. This is a very good conversation.